Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Aaron Powell. And I'm Trevor Burris. Joining us today is Kevin Vallier. He's Associate Professor of Philosophy at Bowling Green State University, and Chad Van Schuland. He's Assistant Professor at Tulane University. Today, we're discussing the ideas of their teacher, philosopher Gerald Gauss, who died in August. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thanks for having me and us. Why should Free Thoughts listeners be interested in Gauss's ideas? I guess to put it simply, um, since Rawls, he's probably the leading theorist of liberalism um, that there is. Um, and for people who are interested in the liberal tradition and the ideas of freedom um, and uh so to a lesser extent, I think, you know, Gauss was not a libertarian uh, uh, by any means, but he was a theorist and defender of a liberal open society. And he'd been defend he's defended it over the course of a number of books um, over about a quarter century. Um, and, you know, he's not as well known as many because um, he didn't do much, didn't always do very much to uh, promote himself. But at least I think, and we'll see if Chad agrees, that, you know, he's got some of the most compelling, if not the most compelling defense of an open society that's out there. Yeah, I think that's right. And one thing that I'd emphasize about Gauss's work is his work on the open society is part of what he called new diversity theory, which is there's a set of theorists who emphasize that diversity is not just a constraint or challenge or problem to be contained, but actually a benefit for us, that diversity of individuals, diversity of institutions, diversity of practices are all sources of benefit, sources of value for us. And that's something that his account, I think, captures that many other accounts neglect or uh, overlook. So we take a step back um, because without the understanding of the concept of public reason here, because diversity of a certain type could be a challenge to public reason. Um, but so what is public reason in the general sense? And is, is it a long tradition that Gauss was working in or is it something that's relatively new? I, I mean, Jerry has some compelling arguments that the idea of public reason, which we, we, we can explain, um, goes all the way back to Hobbes. Um, and the basic idea as it originated is that there's a difference between my own private judgments about what to do in Hobbes' case about the natural law and what to follow. Uh, and then <clears throat> the fact that we interpret morality differently and the result of that can lead to conflict. And so what we ought to have is some kind of system that can make authoritative public judgments uh, for all. Now, the great social contract theorists themselves disagreed a great deal about what kind of form that voice of public judgment should take. And typically they understood it through different kinds or shapes of states. Um, that kind of idea of there being a voice of public reason fell by the wayside for a long time as we sort of traveled. I mean, I think Mill, there's a little bit of something in there, but, you know, as we, we proceeded through utilitarianism, Hegelianism, Marxism, until we get the revival of certain kinds of social contract views uh, in the 1950s, where, of course, Rawls is the leading light here, but there are uh, a number of other figures like Harsanyi and Godier. And uh, what happens is that a number of people, particularly in the 80s and 90s, Rawls, Charles Lawmore and Jerry and a number of others, start to develop this idea of public reason as a kind of defense of the modern liberal state. But Jerry's idea of public reason goes even deeper and it involves <clears throat> much more of society than the state and can limit it. The thought is that we do disagree about how to interpret what we think is right and wrong. And that diversity can threaten our ability to resolve our public judgments, but that there are a variety of political, economic, um, and even private uh, moral mechanisms that we can use in order to come up with public judgments uh, to resolve our disputes. So hopefully that kind of hung together. Is that sort of like uh, saying that – I kind of see it as like a Venn diagram in like a visual sense where the, the, if there's no overlap – whatsoever between moral systems, then it'd be difficult to live under one political system. Is that somewhat accurate? That seems broadly correct, though. One thing that I guess I would emphasize for 
Gauss's view, and this is something that comes up in Kevin's view and my own and a number of public reason people is, oh, sometimes we're not optimizing when we're figuring out what our social morality is going to be, what terms we can live with. So the way that that overlap has to form is not going to be necessarily that everyone has to agree that this or that rule is the best rule. We might agree that it's good enough that we can live with it, good enough that we can see it as not oppressive, good enough that we can see it as a way of holding each other accountable to that, that it gives us some common terms, but not necessarily best. And it's a lot easier to have agreement on things that are good enough rather than agreement on what would be absolutely best. A sort of simple example here might be oh, speed limits around school zones. Some of us are more or less nervous about such things. Some of us might favor higher or lower speed limits, but you can get broad agreement that, I don't know, something in the range of 15 to 25 miles per hour is going to be not oppressive, Um something that we can live with. That's the kind of thing that the public reason tradition is often looking for is our reasonable compromises, what we can all see as at least in the realm of cooperation rather than oppression or authoritarianism. And it's important along those lines um, to recognize that as a kind of new diversity theorist, Jerry isn't just interested in re reasonable disagreement about the good life, as Rawls was for most but not all of his career. Um, Jerry was from the outset concerned with reasonable disagreement about ideology and justice. I mean, even in his book by Justification from 25 years ago, there's a compromise between ideological perspectives. So it's very important for Jerry not to use this idea of reasonableness to kind of narrow the perspective or the range of views that we take seriously. It was an increasingly broad theme of his work to try to take on and respect as much pluralism uh, as he could while still having an idea of public reason. I would just note that at least one way that that pluralism manifests in Jerry's work and not in many other uh, public reason views is in thinking that we don't have to have uh, a single set of rules justified for everyone everywhere, that you end up with an important role for jurisdictions, an important role for polycentricity, or that there might be certain sets of rules that make sense for one part of the population, given what they can agree on, given what they want to try out that might not uh, be authoritative for some other group in the population. So you get a actual continuance of diversity of views of justice or diversity of the rules, potentially diversity of laws in Gauss's account. That makes me wonder, I think, Chad, you had said they, the public reason people go out and they're, they're looking for the rules that are going to handle, best handle this disagreement. And the term looking for is maybe a little ambiguous because on the one hand, it can mean look for in – we're going to imagine and articulate a set of rules. We're going to think through the possibilities, narrow them down and say these are – we've discovered the set of rules. But the other way that you can look for rules is to go out into the world and see what rules are out there. Is is one of those leaned on heavier than the other? Like is the, is the public reason – project to assess rules out in the world and see if they work? Or is it to try to come up with, in the abstract from the armchair, a set of rules that then if only everyone adopted them, things would be hunky-dory? Gosh, I, yeah, it's a very important question. It goes to the heart of some changes across the course of his thought. Yeah, I think for Gauss, at many points in his work, there's the actual practice is a starting point, and this is something that he follows people like Peter Strassen on and thinking, we are actually in a social morality. We're actually cooperating now, and we want to assess the system that we're in in important ways. We're not inventing morality out of nowhere. We don't have a social blank slate or anything like that. So there's a important emphasis on finding 
the rules that we actually have that seem to satisfy a public justification test, the ones that seem to actually be helping us live together cooperatively, versus identifying rules that turn out to not pass that test, that are, um, at least from some perspectives, merely authoritarian or oppressive. So I would tend to emphasize that aspect, that looking at what's actually done. And in some ways, the search is by trying out rules, that there is an ongoing social evolution, an ongoing testing of rules in populations that people can see how they work out, if they want to adopt them or if they want to resist them. That's at least one theme. I think there are other parts of Jerry's work that emphasize something of the rational hypothetical contract tradition, the focus on what kinds of things, given our fundamental interests, what kinds of rules might we want. So he does talk about things like agency rights, that he thinks given the fact that we are the kinds of creatures that pursue our own projects, there are certain necessary conditions for doing that. Having at least certain kinds of individual rights will be necessary for that. And so we might expect those rules to be justified even prior to observing them in practice. But again, I think that's something that I see as secondary, or at least it's not the part that I would emphasize. I would very much emphasize the social morality is a real thing that we actually live in and we're trying to work from where we are. I think there is a trajectory across Jerry's notions of public justification from 1990 to, to just you know a month ago. Um, where he's focused more and more on the actual. So he thought his model of public justification, um, like, say, Rawls's model of, you know, with the original position, um, was going to be able to determine less and less and less on its own. And each book of his major books is a step away from the very first stage where he relied more on the abstract and less on the real. But he was always someone committed to doing both. So it's not like a lot of public reason types where they're just trying to identify the conditions for something as abstract and distant as a well-ordered society. Um, Jerry's starting very much from where we are. In this way, he's a lot more like Hayek than Rawls. Um, it's also very important, and this is just to put a finer point on what Chad said, is that Jerry's project is not to assess the system of rules that we have from the point of view of the universe. Um, it is not a project in a kind of uh, intuition-based uh, moral philosophy like you would find in Sedgwick or Parfit um, or any, even many of the kind of famous Harvard Kantians, um, you know, like Rawls or Scanlon um, or Korsgaard. So that I – well, never mind. I'll take back Korsgaard. Um, so – you know, the thought is that this is a very different kind of evaluation than you find in traditional moral philosophy. Jerry was very aware of this. It was very deliberate about it because he was worried that relying on our intuitions alone um, would have a tendency to lead us to be authoritarian ourselves. That if we only consulted our own judgment and figuring out not only how to run our lives, but how to run our profession, um, that we were going to end up in the wrong place, that we weren't going to see the truth, but rather identify our own intuitions as the truth. Did Gauss uh, identify? I mean, he probably, I assume, identified as a liberal in the, yes. in the classical sense, but not a libertarian. No, I, but he, so he, which would seem more like what you were saying, Kevin. That uh, there's, if you insist on cosmic view of rights as being you know, inviolable based on some sort of theory of morality, it kind of makes it into an authoritarian rule that doesn't really meet people where they are. Uh, but what I mean, what did he think about ideology in, in general for what he was working on? Well, he gets more and more worried about it, um, I think. And I mean, Chad, I don't, I, uh, don't know your, your thoughts on this in particular, but he's at, one, at various points, like in the Order of Public Reason in 2011, he's just really hitting ideology over the head. And he thinks that the thing to do is not to abolish ideology, but to allow for different ideologies to compete within a, a set of uh, mutually justifiable structures. And that was the way to kind of take the sting out of what they were doing and try to draw on what's good about them. Um, so, you know, and he also feared, again, that much of philosophy, contemporary analytic political philosophy, is just a kind of ideology contest. And one of the reasons that he stressed philosophy, politics, economics as a movement um, and a method was to overcome that ideology as contests as political philosophy. 
Yeah, I think that all sounds right to me. And oftentimes when Jerry, like in its, uh, the introduction of the preface to the Order of Public Reason, sort of notes um, that his view is not a hedgehog view. It's not one that just focuses on just one value and its implications. And that's something that he thought at least some libertarians tended to do is you just take one value, self-ownership, non-aggression, whatever – whatever uh, version of that you want, and then just try and hammer every problem with that. And he thought that wasn't a good approach to social and political problems generally. But it's also that even if one thinks that the true view is that, you think that the Lockean self-ownership or whatever version of fundamental libertarianism you like, if you thought that was what the moral truth was, that wouldn't necessarily answer our questions for social morality when we're trying to deal with people who have different views. One thing that Jerry pointed to along this lines is a, a wonderful piece by Lauren Lamasky, um, Libertarianism as if other people mattered, or it's a title very close to that. And what Lamasky says is, suppose my libertarianism is right. Okay, but 99% of people reject it. Now what I need to start thinking about is what kind of terms can I still see as acceptable for living with people? And we might want to seriously differentiate taxation that's used in ways that are obviously just taking from some to give to others or, I don't know, maintaining millions of people being locked in cages for what plants they want to consume or the like. Differentiate those laws, which should just be – rejected and seen as reprehensible from rules like providing apparent public goods where the libertarian might think, well, the really the best system wouldn't involve these. We'd supply our public goods through various um, neighborhood contracts or charities or the like. But this is not the same as locking up millions of people for what plants they consume. This is still compatible with seeing my fellow citizens as attempting to cooperate and live peacefully with me. Similarly, with other ways that the laws might be seen as suboptimally specified, but still acceptable. And along those same lines, Jerry thought that libertarians needed an approach much more like that. That it's one thing to think about what do you think the optimum system is. He's critical of ideal theorizing of that sort generally. But it's another to think about, okay, given my concern for liberty, given my concern for people having individual choice, given my understanding of economics, what range of social rules is still acceptable? What can I still see as a cooperative venture, even if it's suboptimal? but it's still cooperative rather than merely oppressive. I mean, in my view, one of the great deficiencies of the sort of libertarian community is uh, that we uh, don't have a good theory about what to do when almost no one else is a libertarian. Um, so, you know, we, we kind of know what we think would be best. Um, but as far as having a kind of systematic approach to, you know, you know, who can we work with and what laws are acceptable rather than best, um, you know, libertarians have a hard time distinguishing between what's most important and what's what's less morally urgent. Um, uh, and, and many times, you know, we're able to do so. We're able to say, look, um, you know, war, that's the big deal. And um, redistribution for, you know, school lunches is not. Um, but, um, you know, in many ways, public reason is a theory about, well, what do you do when each person has their own ideal theory and you have to live together anyway? So there's a way in which libertarianism and public reason are compatible because libertarianism could be the true theory of justice. It might be the ideal way to organize society. But given that others don't disagree, we need some other way of approaching how to live together. Um, that, that can be informed by libertarianism, but but it can't itself be libertarianism because libertarianism just won't be obeyed. People will just defect from it and ignore it. Uh, they don't see it as justified to them. Yeah, and it here is worth noting that Jerry did think libertarians and classical liberals end up having a pretty significant effect on what kinds of social moralities or laws are ultimately justified. He 
did argue that justificatory liberalism, as he for a while called his view, has a classical liberal tilt, that there's just a pretty significant range of rules that people, libertarians or classical liberals like Mill would have such strong objection to that they would, that they're much more likely to see as oppressive, that there's a way that it whittles down how much is justified. I think that's a good lead into the question I have we've been discussing all this, which is, is this just sneaking ideology in the back door? Because we keep talking about what, you know, like, we can't get what the what's ideal, but we can figure out what rules are acceptable that we want. We want cooperation. But all of those things seem to depend on some metric to judge acceptability by um, so that I can say, no, the rules that you want are unacceptable um, or that we can we can judge that the system is working or not working. But it seems like that assumes, at least from the perspective as you're articulating it and say that Jerry's perspective on it seems to assume this kind of classical liberal broad ideology because I'm imagining someone like Adrian Vermeule would have a very different view of like what counts as acceptable, what it even means for something to be acceptable, how we would judge whether the system is working or not and so on. So it feels almost like you still need an ideology as like the theory by which you can judge all of this empirical stuff you're observing out in society. I, I mean, I think that's a very important challenge, and it goes to a theme in Jerry's work that is actually pretty big in his work, but doesn't always make it into popular discussion, which is that um, with a variety of social theorists uh, in the past, uh, among them Hegel, the thought was that we're not, we're not looking at our evaluative standard as a, just something else we intuit. So to figure out what grounds public justification, Jerry thought, we had to actually look at human societies actually operate uh, and how they operate now and into our moral psychology. So the standards of evaluation were things that were built into our, our already present social practices that already implicitly governed people's uh, ways of thinking about the world, which is why Jerry spends a gigantic amount of time across his work trying to give an analysis of the moral emotions and what are often called the reactive attitudes of, of guilt, uh, resentment, and indignation, and to tease out of those practices the standard of public justification. But Chad's the sort of expert in reactive attitudes, so I'll sort of throw that over to him. Well, one thing I – there are a couple different levels that we could be looking at when discussing the role of ideology here, what kinds of commitments there are. Kevin was talking about the sort of deeper level of how do we get the criteria of public reason itself, which is exactly as Kevin said, on Jerry's view, that comes from facts about our moral psychology. This is one of those ways in which we can't just think of our own intuitions about what justified means or what reasonable means. He thought that we had to do serious research into psychology. And he, over the decades, read considerable amounts and cites and discusses the uh, psychological views of the day and what kinds of things we learn as humans develop and how they emotionally respond to behaviors and what kinds of things they are and aren't sensitive to. But at a different level, when thinking about the justification of a particular rule, that sort of way that the classical liberals might be chipping away at the rules, that assessment of a particular rule is done through the lens of an ideology. But the important thing on a public justification view, like Jerry's, like Kevin's, like mine, is that it's actually not done through an ideology. It's done through a plurality of different perspectives that individuals bring. So if I'm trying to think what rules seem justified to me, then it's true that I will be thinking, given my understanding of morality, given my understanding of the good life, given some of my beliefs about how the world is, how it operates, what things there are and aren't in the world, that's how I might sort the set of rules of those that I find acceptable versus those that I find silly or those I find oppressive. That doesn't settle the question, though, in terms of public justification, because Kevin has different values than me. Kevin has different views than I do. He believes in different things in the world than I do. 
So in order to assess what kinds of rules are going to be justified, not just for me, but for Kevin and me, we have to then consider his perspective. In, in practice, often the best way to do this is through actual discussions or actual um, empirics of letting people with their perspectives bring their their views. But oftentimes we do attempt at least to get a little bit of uh, headway by decentering, by given what I know of Kevin's view, how do I think this rule would appear to him that I might know this rule looks great to me, but there's no way Kevin could accept it. So that's not the one I'm going to try and push for or defend. Um, but yeah, important there is that there's this plurality of perspectives and we're trying to find what's acceptable across them rather than assuming a single ideology. So ideology has a role, but not just an ideology has a role. And it also, and it, it is crucial that, you know, Jerry's project is just try to start from getting that plurality because of all the benefits that it brings. And so when you're looking at the, the what the sort of public justification standard is and where it's grounded, it has to be grounded in the social scientific examination of what we're like, rather than the standard kind of way of approaching, say, economic justice over the last 50 years, where we take certain intuitions and then try to systematize them. Um, so, so the thought is you avoid it becoming one more ideology in the way that it's grounded. Um, it's a form of imminent criticism that's built in uh, to the kind of thing we are. How does religion fit into this? I'm thinking especially recently, and Aaron mentioned Adrian Vermeule, so we have a, a at least some people who are becoming Catholic integralists. And then, we, of course, we have an illiberal wokatarianism uh, that both of them seem to not be able to find a public reason for liberalism. So like, can a uh, religious theocrat fit into Gauss's system? <laughs> um, gosh, I could say a ton. Um, hmm. One had a go quickly. Uh, in 2009, Jerry and I wrote a little article on religion and public reason, where he argued that the role that they can play is much, much broader than standard public reason views allow. In particular, we defended this kind of diversity-friendly public reason view in which people could bring, when they're voting at least, uh, all their religious reasons to bear on their activities. Uh, however, once they get into power, there are pretty sharp limits on what they're permitted to do because the coercion they employ has to be acceptable to multiple perspectives. So if as a religious citizen, your goal is to vote on religious grounds, or if you want a religious exemption, you know, we're both very exemption-friendly, you can get an exemption. But if you want to capture, as Vermeule does, if you you want to capture the state, the administrative state with all the trimmings, and then start to push people into your own view, that's totally out of bounds. And it's out of bounds for a number of reasons. Not only did Gujari at various points think that would be authoritarian and browbeating, he thought it would undermine the valuable moral relations that we had with people with other views, things like friendship um, and trust. But um, uh, going even further into his later work, he just thinks it wouldn't work. That the open society is a kind of spontaneous order that resists kind of macro impositions. And in the tyranny of the ideal, which is a few years earlier, he said that attempts to take over with a single idea would be tyrannical because, uh, in, among other things, there would be kind of we have no idea how to get there. Right. And so we're going to ultimately have to drag people there. I mean, Vermeule's postulating a ruling uh, uh, organ organization of the United States that we've never been anywhere close to. And his 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 strategy for getting there is for Catholics to become high level ranking bureaucrats. But I mean, if you think for two seconds about how the other side is going to react to that, you know, with immediate rejection, <laughs> um, we just don't know how to get from point A to point B. Um, so that's another problem is we don't even know how to get there. But even if we did, it would be oppressive. It would be relationship undermining. It would be authoritarian. Yeah, along those lines, I think it's important to differentiate different ways that someone could be a theocrat or the like. One is that they might think in the ideal world – Everyone would be a member of my faith, the one true faith, and then we'd organize society in accordance with the teachings of, of my faith. If someone thinks that, that doesn't 
tell us much about whether or not we can live peacefully with them. They, one of the issues is what do they think when people, in fact, disagree with them? Do they think, well, we just have to be at war with those people because you can't possibly live with the heathens? Or do they think, you know, it's really important for me to try and convince them, but not to force them, drag them into the church against their will? So we have to think about how exactly is a person seeing their religious values and the implications when in a context of disagreement. As it happens, lots of people have neighbors and friends and coworkers who have different religions from them. And there's a tendency, at least in our society, for many people to have different expectations for those who are co-members of their faith versus those who aren't. That Kevin might have expectations about the people that go to church with him that he just won't hold me to. And we find that with many religions. Same with non-religions, but I know quite a number of vegetarians and vegans who have those uh, practices based on moral non-religious commitments that they think they're really important. And they would love to convince other people, but they're not expecting others to. They're not necessarily being indignant at others who don't behave as they do, who see the world differently. That's, of course, not all vegetarians or vegans. Some do get indignant, but there's many people who approach these issues thinking, here's what I think is ideally best. Here's what I think a full understanding of the relevant moral considerations would lead us to do, but I recognize that other people don't see it that way, and I'm willing to try and either live and let live or find compromise or see if we can work this out peacefully. Yeah, and that's the important thing is is that there are a lot of people out there who seem like they would rather have war, but one thing I found in my own thinking about this is that very frequently that's just talk. So, you know, take Vermeule. He's just co-authored a book with Cass Sunstein, whose voting rights he would have to take away in his ideal regime. And I sometimes wonder whether he'd have the guts, right? Like Sunstein's a good friend of his. Like, could he really look him in the eye and say, I'm right, you're wrong, uh, you know, the vote's out? Uh, maybe. Um, but you, you do wonder, I think, with a lot of people who get along great with people with lots of different perspectives, but then they say only my perspective. We know there have been people who will do that. But at the same time, if Jerry's right, this is such a public justification is in a way deep set part of who we are. He can't hold Sunstein responsible for not having his view. He can't blame him. Sunstein's brilliant. He's thought through his own values. Right. So, you know, my my sense is that uh, even a lot of the people that are very authoritarian, there's at least some of them that I think um, it's. I don't know if it's an act exactly. I think it's um, a type of virtue signaling. Like yeah, concern, it could be. yeah, the sort. Yeah. And sometimes people are just inconsistent about it. At least one thing, if we think about the moral psychology, that on Gauss's account, what does some of the work is if you recognize that from the other person's perspective, the demand is not justified then you can't rationally sustain some of the moral emotions like resentment and indignation. The example I tend to give here is if God were to tell me personally a new commandment and say, I'm just telling you first, Chad, I haven't alerted all the hoi polloi <laughs> out there. Just so you know, people are no longer allowed to drive between 3 and 4 p.m. That's just something that God doesn't approve of anymore. Hasn't told anyone else. I walk outside my house and see people driving at 3.05. How upset should I be at them? Should I be condemning them as terrible people? It seems not if I know that they haven't been informed of the rule, if they don't know from their perspective that that's uh, a problem in any way. So I think that one thing we have to keep in mind is – when people are rattling their sabers, sometimes they're just doing it, that they, they wouldn't, if push came to shove, they wouldn't actually go through with it. Some of the time, it's because they're caught up in thinking that other people don't actually have different perspectives from them, that at least some of the demands that we see is because they 
don't recognize that the rules aren't justified. You see this an example I've put in uh, writing or at least given at talks a number of times is when there's discussions of homosexuality, sometimes you get people who think, well, this is just obvious, can't produce children, unnatural, blah, 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 whatever. They think that it's not just that they think, you know, you have to have God's secret teaching. It's they think that it's wrong and it's obvious to everybody. It's irrational or whatever. On the other side, there are a number of people who we use the term homophobia. What does that mean? It's a fear. It's an irrational fear. The claim is supposed to be something like, it seems, that it's so obviously permissible for people to engage in homosexuality that to say otherwise shows that you have a mental illness, that that's how obvious it is, that any difference in perspective is really you just being insane. If you have a view like that, that your views are not only true, but so glaringly obvious that everyone, in fact, can see them. It's a lot easier to push people around. It's a lot easier to say, and we're just going to impose it on everybody because everyone can see that it's justified and they're just being stubborn or, you know, displaying their wickedness when they verbally say they don't agree, when they claim to not support the rule. They deep down really do. Views like that, I think, are at least sometimes what's going on in the public discourse that Kevin was uh, identifying. Shifting gears a bit, we've this has come up a, some through the conversation, but I wanted to address it head on, which is so much of Gauss's work is intensely interdisciplinary, and he's drawing from all sorts of fields of knowledge. Um, his his academic training wasn't actually in philosophy. He got his, his PhD in political science. Um, what role did non-philosophical bodies of knowledge play in his work and thinking? And what was his position on, you know, most philosophy doesn't do that, right? Um, most philosophers do philosophy and don't really draw on the natural sciences and economic modeling and computer science, all of the things. Um, what was what was the value of, of branching out from philosophy? Having gone back through some of this work, um, one of the things that starts to become more and more of a theme um, is his critique of philosophy. And um, one of the – there's a number of different problems um, with what in the, the final book he calls hyper-individualized moral judgment. Um, which is that um, it can hurt progress in philosophy because you you have these stable intuitive judgments and then you spin out theories and then you just keep on tweaking them and you don't actually learn more about how to solve social problems. So, so that's one issue is just the worry that philosophers are just spinning their wheels. And he even says in the last book, which you know hasn't come out yet, um, he's almost got like a debunking argument where he says, look, a lot of these intuitions are, are – uh, the product of having, you know, weird, you know, w, you know, uh, uh, white, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic psychologies, you know, which are really unusual historically speaking. Um, like the Hen Henrich book is, you know, making the case for that now. Um, so what a lot of philosophy is doing is it's just sort of systematizing weird psychology and in intuition pumps. Um, and he thinks you're not going to make progress on how people can cooperate and live together if that's all you're doing. But worse than that, it isn't just you'll know less. You'll be less able to cooperate with other people to figure out what you don't know. And even worse than that, you were, you risk being tyrannical of dragging people to social states based merely on spinning your own intuitive moral wheels. Um, so, yeah, there's also emphasize that. For Jerry, in a lot of ways, it was a recognition that we're not the first or only people to think about some of these difficult issues. That comes up when thinking about the history of philosophy, that he was critical of how often contemporary philosophers only read people who've published uh, in the recent years and don't realize that many of these same debates were already fought 100 years ago or 150 mm -hmm. years ago, that there's actually quite a lot of ideas that were worked through and then forgotten because 
people just don't read widely enough or they don't take seriously enough some of the history. And then also in these other fields that we have all these people talking about economic justice. It's like, huh, I wonder if people in an economics department might have something uh, to say about this that might be relevant to these questions. So the kind of narrowness is often missing that there's lots of valuable contributions made by other people, lots of valuable insights made in other fields that philosophers all too often completely not just ignore the particulars, but ignore the possibility. Don't even bother to look. One of Gauss's last books was a book called Tyranny of the Ideal. Um, what what debate was he wading into on there, and what was his view of ideal theory? It's probably obvious from the title, but uh, <laughs> that debate and, and Gauss's view on it. In my view, that's in many ways his hardest book because I I read it and see if Chad thinks this is trying to do two things. One, it's trying to point out the dangerous role of ideal theory in societies as a whole, where you take only what he calls the optimizing stance and just try to do whatever's best for your perspective. And the difficulty is that there's a huge amount about justice and about institutionalizing justice that we don't know, such that if we try to drag our society towards justice, we might actually make it worse off. For instance, you know, in between two peaks of the amount of justice you get from arrangements, there might be a valley in between. And when you try to drag your society from a lower peak to a higher peak, you get stuck in the valley. Lots of topographical analogies in that book. So we need diverse searches, diverse teams, diverse perspectives in order to uncover the terrain of justice to even figure out how to institutionalize our ideals, even how to get remotely close to them. But on top of that, I think he's also it's a it's a book laying out the dangers of mere philosophy, mere political philosophy and formulating ideals, because if you just say what the best is, there's so much else to know about how to establish the best and the tendency of the philosophical mind shorn of help from any other perspective, uh, any other in, in a, any other discipline, is that they are going to be uniquely tempted to be tyrannical because they're the ones who are most impressed <laughs> with themselves for coming up with these ideals. It, it reminds me of um, my favorite footnote in the history of philosophy is, I believe, footnote 42 in Will Kimlicka's introduction to contemporary political philosophy where I can't remember who he's discussing, but he's been discussing some body of thought. And then he just has this throwaway line in a footnote where he's like, but nowhere in any of this is there a discussion of whether these ideas would work in practice. And then he just moves on. Like there's just, you know, I've just, I need to acknowledge this, but it's not that important. Um, for listeners who are interested in exploring Gerald Gauss's ideas further, what's a good place to start? Because his books tend to be – he's not an easy guy to read. If one wants to understand his view broadly, sort of what the project is, I think The Order of Public Reason is the book to go to. That it's late enough in his career to have settled in more or less to a view that thought was correct enough. Um, and you get the moral psychology, you get a discussion of the kind of problem being addressed, the issues of social morality as opposed to mere politics. And you do get a discussion of the role that Jerry saw for the state, sort of its role within social morality, the kind of things that it can help us with that maybe social morality without the state has difficulties with. So and now it is 600 pages or so. So it is a bit uh, tough to recommend that as the introduction to someone's thought. But for someone wanting to understand his project, that would be the book that I would most recommend. Something like Tyranny of the Ideal, I think, is very useful, but I find much easier to understand in the context of already knowing the order of public reason. Some of the earlier books, I think, sometimes more approachable than the order of public reason, but also 
sometimes not as fully developed or there might be important changes. For instance, the role of the state seems to me different in Jerry's earlier books like Justificatory Liberalism than in The Order of Public Reason. And and you can also, I mean, just um, take a look at the beginning of that book and the end. So, you know, to get a sense for what he's after, you know, just reading the first chapter um, to get what his overall um, concerns are. And then there's something else at the end, the concluding remarks um, that I think are pretty accessible. There's a couple of uh, videos of um, his uh, lectures um, on uh, on YouTube. Um and the thing about Jerry's work is that he was so preoccupied with other fields and always learning new stuff and developing new projects and working really hard with his graduate students that he didn't actually write very much, just like, here, here's the very simple version of my view. Um, however, there is um, there are a few different little articles that he wrote that are on his website, hilariously named gauss.biz, Um and he has a few different pieces. One's on Cato Unbound from 2011, which is about the book. And um, he has, you know, some comments there, and that's pretty accessible. He has a little uh, discussion in um, um, a, a magazine called The Critique from 2017 called The Open Society and Its Friends with Friends Like These Who Need Enemies. And there he applies some of his ideas. Um, and that's, that's about 20 double-spaced pages um, so, you know, he has an interview that he did with the New York Times on the virtues of political disagreement. So, yeah, I mean, what we're hoping to do now, you know, since his death was unexpected, and oftentimes people will do this writing, to, you know, when they realize they're kind of done with their, their work, um, is that a lot of his students were hoping to um, write, you know, materials that, you know, explain things. But he's got a couple of things that I think do a pretty good job. Um, and then, the, yeah, like I said, the YouTube videos um, and of course, we're always happy to talk about, uh, to talk about these things. Um, um, but yeah, he's always changing his view. He discouraged his students from writing about him very much. Um, and so, yeah, there's not as much out there as there might be. It's not like in Rawls's lifetime where everybody's writing Rawls and, you know, about Rawls and, you know, here's Rawls's view. And so he had all these students framing the work and, you know, breaking it down. Jerry never did a justice's fairness, a restatement, um, you know, which is, you know, less than 200 pages of Rawls stating his view. Um, so we're kind of seeing it as uh, left to us uh, to do more to, um, to make it accessible. But there's, there's still a lot. His website contains a huge number of his papers that are in PDFs for people to just poke around and read. So I would just, t- I would just tell people to go to the website, go to gals.biz and, um, and explore things. Um, and then in time, you know, we'll get, we'll get some more uh, stuff in print out there about it. What do you both hope to be Gauss's legacy uh, in terms of what, if he can maybe change the conversation or if he's seen maybe in 20 years as having changed the conversation uh, or, or perhaps uh, something else, but Chad? Um, I think it would be great if there was a lot more people working in the new diversity theory. If there was a lot more people who we're seeing diversity as an incredible source of value and benefit and an engine of innovation and solving problems. Very many people today seem to treat diversity as a high cost, as a problem. It's the sort of thing that can drive their worries about immigration, leading to people not having a common culture or the like, or seeing there being a problem if some other people don't share their um, political views or ideology or perspective. I see that as a central, unfortunate feature of the the modern world, that diversity is seen as a problem to be contained or something to be overcome. And a lot of political philosophy uh, has that line, even in public reason, which starts from the problem of diversity. So many of the views try and solve it by saying, ah, but here's this thing that we can all agree on. 
we can all have this robust conception of citizenship that we all share and agree to, and that will do all the work for us. Homogeneity is the way that you solve heterogeneity. I think that that's unfortunate. So much more grasp, grappling with the difficult issues of truly deep and ever-expanding diversity and a attempt to understand how that can be a good thing rather than a problem. That's what I would like to see as at least part of Jerry's legacy and the kind of thing that I think a number of us are are working on these days of trying to improve understanding of diversity as a good thing, not something that needs to be suppressed. I agree wholeheartedly, and I would add two things to that. Um, number one, uh, the next book is called The Open Society and Its Complexities. And one of the things Jerry says there is that we've evolved into an open society, but we don't really understand it. And he's outlining in that book how we can answer the question of are human beings fit for the open society or not? He says we're fit for it, but not optimized for it. Um, and given that the open society is under threat, I think, from both forces on the right and on the left, we don't have to say who's, who's the bigger threat, just that they're there. Um, is just trying to come up with a method of trying to understand what an open society is and what keeps it stable. I mean, I think the central important question, normative question for social scientists and philosophers to answer together is, is the open society stable or is it just a temporary phenomenon that will collapse? And I think if Jerry's probably done more than anybody to help us to understand how to even answer that question and to provide an answer to that question. So on top of that, it's not just his answers to the questions, but his profoundly interdisciplinary mode of answering the question, of that of the, the PPE thing. So we want new diversity theory and more of that. We want PPE and more of that. And we want a better understanding of the open society and how to preserve it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.